Father, we come to you this morning with hearts that are filled with hope and anticipation to meet you, to hear you. Father, thank you for your presence. Thank you that it's here. Thank you that there's nothing we have to do to find you, that you are here um, with your peace. We love you in your precious name. Amen. Good morning. It is Palm Sunday. It is the beginning of what we call Holy Week, where we look to Easter, um, where Jesus rose from the dead for our sins, and so we can live victoriously. But between today and Easter, there's so much um, uh, between Holy Thursday and Good Friday and all of the waiting that comes. But today, we get to talk about Palm Sunday. I often ask myself, what is my heart behind doing this, behind standing up here every few weeks? What can I consistently weave through the words that I say? Outside of getting teary on a regular basis about how much God loves you, that there's nothing you can do to make him love you more or less, that no matter what happens in your life, he is worth trusting I want to bring Jesus and the people and the truths of the Bible to life so that you know him, that you want to be with him, to spend time with him, to allow Jesus to shape and mold and change you. That yes, absolutely, Jesus is God, but Jesus is a person too. In John 1.14, it says, The Word became flesh and made its dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word, with a capital W, is Jesus. That Word became flesh and made his dwelling, his home with us. He had flesh like us. Jesus was as much a person as you and I are. I think that's something, though, that our minds wrestle with comprehending. And maybe, even if we're being honest, it can have trouble believing. I know mine can. I look at my humanity and I wonder, how could he be like me? But in Hebrews, it tells us, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. I think there's so much comfort in that line, he too shared in their humanity. We are not in this alone. Jesus felt what we felt. He had emotions like we do. He had thoughts and feelings like we do. Jesus got hungry. He was thirsty. He was tempted. He got angry. Jesus felt excited. He had a job. He had a family, and it wasn't a perfect one. He went to places to be alone. He spent time with friends. Jesus dreaded things. He hoped for things. He sat around campfires. Jesus thought about the future. And Jesus wept. We're going to talk today about the two recorded times that Jesus wept. It might seem kind of funny that we're doing that on a day that we wave palm branches and shout Hosanna, but stay with me. Both the books of John and Luke mention that Jesus wept. Right after it tells that, it, in John, it tells the story of Palm Sunday. And right before it talks about Jesus weeping in Luke, 
it tells of Palm Sunday. So Palm Sunday is nestled between the two times it's recorded in Scripture that Jesus wept. And I found that interesting. And so this morning, we're going to start with John 11. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. This passage really emphasizes how much love Jesus had for this family. This was a deep friendship, a depth of relationship, which resulted in loving one another. If you picture a family that you love spending time with, as couples you enjoy each other, your kids get along, you have the same hobbies, you genuinely love them and love being together, that was like Jesus with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. They were just good, good friends who loved each other. Verse 6. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Mary and Martha to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Mary heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into this world. This is a very human exchange between Mary or between Martha and Jesus. I imagine Martha pretty mad at Jesus coming up to him. She ran to him and said, Lord, Jesus, why didn't you come? You could have done something. Lazarus could be alive. But Jesus looks her in the eye and he said, Martha, do you trust me? After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. And when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Mary shared the same feelings as Martha. Jesus, you could have done something. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? Jesus asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. 
Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. So here is Jesus, God wrapped in flesh, knowing he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead and knowing that very soon that he's going to be the resurrection and the life, weeping. Jesus is deeply moved in spirit, greatly troubled. Death is so, so painful. There's hugging and there's whispers and there's questions and there's weeping. And as they wept, Jesus wept with them. He experienced the same emotions, their pain, their heaviness, their sorrow with them. We have a Savior who has come to us in the very flesh, who knows and understands what it means to be filled with pain, to weep, who is able to identify and empathize with our hurt. He wept at the grave of someone he loved so much, like many of us have. The way that Jesus enters into this emotionally charged situation is so, so beautiful. Jesus stood with them, and he wept. He paused, and he cried, because he enters our pain and our hurt because he loves us, because he understands us. He is tender to our humanity because he is human too. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. It is believed that there were just a few days between the story of Lazarus and the triumphal entry. There was unrest and there was turmoil in the land. From the chief priests towards Jesus, from the Romans toward the Jews, from the Jews towards the Romans. So this next story, when placed in the historical and social and political context, is absolutely charged with electricity. I knew some of it, but have loved going deeper this week as I've studied. I will do my best explaining some of the things I've learned, many of them from my friend Tim, who is a pastor at South Harbor. We're moving into Luke. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And I have a map. Can you see that yet? There we go. So we'll pause here because this detail sets the stage for everything that's coming. The first question we have to ask whenever a place is mentioned is why? Why is Jesus headed to Jerusalem? He's not from Jerusalem. If you remember last week, we learned that Jesus' home was in Capernaum, which is about 90 miles north of Jerusalem. And those 90 miles are not easy miles. They're hard. They're through the desert, over mountains, by foot. So if you can see... Capernaum at the top of the Sea of Galilee, and then Jerusalem down there. So Jesus made this journey. But why is he headed to Jerusalem? The answer, Jesus is a Jew. And on this particular Sunday, what we call Palm Sunday, 
kicked off what would be a very big week for the Jewish people. Because on Thursday night, they would celebrate perhaps the biggest Jewish holiday, which was Passover. Passover is the yearly celebration and remembrance of an event that happened approximately 2,000 years earlier. It was the moment when God, through Moses, set the Israelites free from slavery in Egypt. And even though Moses played a central role, Moses led them out, there was no doubt in their minds that it was God who set them free. The Egyptians were the largest military superpower of that day. They had sophisticated weapons. They even built the pyramids. And so, central to that celebration of Passover was this belief in God, that through God, anything is possible. With God, no matter how big or how bad the enemy looks, there will be justice. And so, every year, if you were Jewish, you would leave your home, travel to the capital city of Jerusalem to celebrate and remember Passover. And because of this, there was a huge gathering of people. Hundreds of thousands of people packed into this city, which was normally only around 40,000 people. They were all there to remember a time in their past when God had set them free from slavery. But there was another reason the Jewish people would gather for Passover. Passover is described in the Bible as a Jewish festival. The word festival in Hebrew actually means to rehearse. So they believed that the festivals weren't just about remembering something that happened in the past. The festivals were a rehearsal for something else that would happen again. And that's an important detail to remember because at the time of Jesus, the Egyptians were no longer the problem. Because now there was a new global military superpower on the scene, the Roman Empire. And those mighty, brutal Romans made the Egyptians look almost weak. The Romans were larger and stronger and more vicious than the Egyptians could have even imagined. These are the same Romans who took a torture device that was being used by barbarians they tweaked it so the pain would last longer, and they renamed it the cross. The historical records from this time period is just one account after another of these Romans crucifying entire cities for people trying to rebel against them. They were so brutal. There are accounts of them lining the streets with crosses, so that any time you left your house, if you were one of the few who survived in the city, you would walk by your neighbors or your families hanging on the crosses. That's unimaginable. Their message couldn't have been clearer. Don't mess with Rome. So Passover is about worship and remembering, but it is also about rehearsing and maybe protest. The world is not how it should be. It's as if the Jews were saying, it was stirring inside them, God, we believe that you can defeat them. You can set us free like you did 2,000 years ago from the Egyptians. 
And so, every year, if you were Jewish, you would head down to Jerusalem to the Passover festival to rehearse. And every year, you would pray, you would sing songs, you would tell stories about what had happened there and how God raised up a man called Moses. And you waited for a new Moses who would lead the next charge to freedom. The prophets referred to this new Moses figure as the Messiah, God's anointed one, the one who was going to save them and heal them all. And Jesus, the story begins, is headed to Jerusalem for Passover. The Messiah is coming. Do you get a sense of the electricity in the air? Is this the year? Is this the year it's going to happen? Now, at the same time all of this is happening, there is someone else who is headed to Jerusalem. His name is Pilate. Pilate was a Roman governor, which raises the question, why is Pilate in Jerusalem? It is definitely not to celebrate Passover because he's not Jewish. Jerusalem is not where he lives. Pilate lived in a mansion off the coast of the Mediterranean Sea in a city called Caesarea. It's about 50 miles away from Jerusalem. Charles, I might have put the pictures in this right here. There we go. I just learned how to do slides. Charles is my hero when he's so kind and patient with me. Um, But this right here is the ruin of Pilate's home. And if you look more for pictures, this is gorgeous. It's like spring break. And so this is where Pilate is living, his home. He was wealthy. It was amazing. And he left his home to go to dusty Jerusalem. So why isn't he in his hometown? Why was he in Jerusalem? Well, the answer is Pilate's job was working for Rome. He was a Roman governor. And Roman governors had basically two jobs. Number one, collect the taxes for Rome. And most important is number two, keep the peace. Do you see Pilate's problem, why he wanted to leave his home and come keep the peace in this city? If your entire job is to maintain order, and now the streets are literally packed with thousands and thousands and thousands of people singing songs and drinking wine and telling stories about how God took down their enemies, I could see why he wanted to be the center of this thing. What if they celebrate too loudly? What if they drink too much wine? What if they start saying things like, I think we can take them. Look around. We've got this. What if the people rebel? And so every year during the Passover celebration, as Jewish people were marching into Jerusalem, Pilate would stage his own march into the city to keep the peace and hopefully intimidate the Jews enough to remember who was in charge. And his march, it was a sight to see. Some historians say that Pilate took as many as six legions of soldiers. A legion is 6,000 men. So you have this army of 36,000 Roman soldiers marching from city to city down the streets of your town and your neighborhood. This whole spectacle was his way of saying, don't even think about it. We will crush you. 
and leading the army on a great horse was Pilate. Can you picture it? 36,000 soldiers, the sun reflecting off the metal of their armor, the steady sound of soldiers marching together in rhythm. This whole thing was about intimidation. So let's keep reading. As Jesus approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives. So remember, Pilate is marching in from Caesarea, which is to the west of Jerusalem. And Jesus, as Luke tells us, is coming into the city from Bethpage and Bethany, which are from the east. So Pilate from the west, Jesus from the east. Luke also tells us that Jesus is on a hill called the Mount of Olives. This picture is a view from the Mount of Olives. That big golden dome in the background is known as the Dome of the Rock. It's now an Islamic holy site, but it stands exactly where the temple would have been in Jesus' day. Looking out, Jesus could see Jerusalem. He could see the temple. I wonder if he could see Pilate and his soldiers. They weren't that far away. And if there were 36,000 of them, could Jesus see the sun reflecting off their armor? Could Jesus hear the metal clanging? Could Jesus see the dust cloud riding, rising in the distance? Pilate from the west and Jesus from the east. And the crowds, as Jesus marches into the city, are waving palm branches. Now Luke doesn't mention this detail about the palm branches, but Matthew, Mark, and John, they do. This is how John describes this same moment. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, saying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the King of Israel! Jerusalem is in the desert. Sure, there are some palm trees, but I learned this week that you really had to go out of your way to find them. But it's not just that the people went out of their way to find the palm branches. They're waving the palm branches. Have you ever thought that was kind of weird? I kind of think it would be like if the president was driving down your street and you wanted to show your patriotism. My guess is you probably wouldn't immediately think, I need to find a tree branch and wave it. No, that would be weird. What would we wave? Probably a flag or a patriotic sign. When I was in ninth grade, I was able to go to Lansing when President George Bush came in town for the debates against Bill Clinton and Ross Perot. And on our way to Lansing, we stopped at um, the airport in Grand Rapids, and we saw Air Force One land. And we saw George Bush come down those steps waving. And we all had those little American flags, and we were waving them like crazy. There was so much excitement in the air. And I remembered this morning, as I was um, going over this again, I have a treasure box of a ridiculous amount of treasures from my life. That I was texting pictures to my brother, and he was mocking me this morning. But I was like, this is a good sermon illustration. But I got rid of the sign, and I was so bummed because it said Bush Quail 92. But I found my 1992 temporary tattoos that say Bush. 
And I wish I could have found a picture, but I did have a um, high side ponytail and a scrunchie. But anyway, that excitement, that day, that's exactly what these people were doing when Jesus came. The palm branch was, for these people, a sign. It was a flag of sorts. The palm branch was a political symbol. Very simply, in the, in the Greek empire, the one just before Rome, some terrible things were done to the Jews too. And in the middle of all that, a Jewish family known as the Maccabees rose up and said, enough, we've had enough. And Brent talked about them a couple weeks ago. And so the Jewish people at the Maccabees' command, they staged a full-on revolt against the Greeks. And they won. It's a victory that is still celebrated to this day, known as the Festival of Hanukkah. I know I'm hurrying through this, but I'm telling you all of it because this is where the palm branches come in. There is another festival that the Jewish people celebrate. They sound like fun people. We need to have more festivals. And it's called Sukkot, which is central to the festival of Sukkot are two things, palm branches and the word Hosanna. Sukkot is a festival in which the people would plead with God for rain. And they would wave the palm branches. And thousands of palm branches, I guess, when you wave them, sound like rain. And so a way to celebrate, the people would wave palm branches and they would cry out, Hoshana, Hosanna, God save us now, send rain. They did this every single year. But by now, the Jewish people were no longer free. And this time, it wasn't the Egyptians or the Greeks. It was the Romans. And so the Jewish resistance to move, it began to bubble up in the years leading up to Jesus. And they called themselves the Zealots. Their slogan was, do whatever it takes. Their war cry, Hosanna. Their flag, the palm branch. This whole story is dripping with revolution. Hamilton and the American Revolution, or Les Mis and the French Revolution. Do you hear the people saying? With all of this in mind, let's go back to our story. As Jesus approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Basically, why, is, why are these guys stealing my donkey? Tell them, the Lord needs it. Now, maybe I've watched too many movies, but do you know how I picture or expect Jesus to do? How it expect him to enter that city? I expect him to get on a horse and ride into Jerusalem, William Wallace style, hair flowing, eyes blazing. But what does Jesus do instead? Could you please get me a donkey? Donkeys are not the most intimidating animal. They're slow, they're stubborn, they're kind of cute. And I don't know if you can imagine trotting I don't, do they trot? Or, I don't, I've never seen a donkey run. They're just, like, they're just slow. But riding, trotting, whatever they would do, walking into battle on one of those things, how fast could a donkey go anyway? It's probably going to be the end of you. 
But the donkey was actually the Jewish symbol for peace. Because the only time a donkey would be ridden in war is if you were surrendering or giving up. So I wonder what the crowds were thinking. Is Jesus giving up? Those who were sent ahead went and found the donkey just as he told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus. They threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And when Jesus came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all of the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Do you hear what the people are saying? He's not giving up. Yes, the donkey is a symbol for peace, but it's not because Jesus is giving up. God is about to have the victory. And where did they get this idea? Well, the author of Matthew tells us about this moment. The prophet Zechariah prophesied, he said this moment was going to happen. He talked about the king coming in on a donkey. In Zechariah 9.9, we read, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. The crowd, good Jewish people, knew those words. They knew that prophecy. Why do you wave palm branches? Because in their mind, that's the way you get peace. You fight back. Pilate from the west, Jesus from the east. Now again, Put yourself in the story. The great messianic king of Israel is entering the city, not on a noble horse as a mighty conqueror, but on a lowly donkey. The road Jesus took into Jerusalem began at the Mount of Olives to the east of Jerusalem. As he rode that donkey down the dusty road, crowds of people gathered and shouted, Hosanna, waving palm branches, rejoicing with victory and triumph, anticipation, joy, excitement. This is happening. What a rousing, mighty, royal welcome he was given by the multitudes of people with loud shouts and vigorous waving of palm branches. As Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day, what would bring you peace? Instead of reveling in the overpowering throng of the rejoicing all around him, Jesus did something so unexpected. 
as he gazed at the delighted faces of all the people standing there and the whole city of Jerusalem in the background, Jesus wept. Tears in the middle of this celebration? This scene is beginning to offer a very different flavor suddenly. We now have Jesus displaying vulnerable tears running down his cheeks. The word here in Greek that's used for wept is a word that's definition means weep aloud, expressing uncontainable, audible grief, loud, guttural sobbing. Jesus literally cried his heart out. Knowing that throughout time, people are people, and tears can often make things feel uncomfortable, I can imagine the crowd quickly dispersing, people gathering their palm branches and their children, hustling home, whispering to each other, what is wrong with him? Why on earth is he crying? Are you wondering why Jesus weeps too? He was so visibly overcome with sorrow and with grief. He openly expressed the depth of his emotional lamentation over the city of the people that do not understand and respond to the true meaning of rescue and freedom, to the true meaning of a savior, that he was standing right in front of them. He was their peace, and they missed it. This parade, the one opposite of Pilate's military parade, is one of humble declarations that a very different kind of king has arrived. Jesus is a king who longs to save them, who longs to be the deep, true, lasting source of our peace to save us. They missed it. And I think that too often... We miss it, too. This is why Jesus was weeping for the people as he rode that donkey on that first Palm Sunday. He knew they didn't understand his role as king, the one that would bring shalom and peace and rest for their souls. Jesus didn't come to conquer kingdoms and nations. He came to transform our hearts and our minds he came to bring us true peace, a peace that passes all understanding. He came to be our Savior, to save us from our sins. And Jesus wept because they didn't get it. We don't get it. We so often don't recognize our need for a Savior we try to fix things. We try to make things right of what's not right in our lives. We grip the illusion of control so tightly. We look for other things to satisfy us, to save us. We look to other sources for peace. It takes so much of us to come to the end of ourselves when we finally think, oh, I guess I should pray about this. I guess I'll try the Jesus way here. But why? 
Why does it take us so long to cry out to him? Lord, save us. Why does it take us so long to go to him for true saving and true peace and true rescue for our souls? The human part of Jesus cries with us in our pain and our sorrows. And it's the same Jesus who cries for us to understand what it means to follow him into a true, deep peace, a peace that passes understanding. In Ephesians, we read, for he himself is our peace. And if that doesn't make you want to take a deep breath, I don't know what does. He himself is our peace. He weeps with us because he's human. He weeps for us because he's God. And in the middle of all of that, he is inviting us to trust him as the king of our hearts, that we need a savior to save us from our sins and to give us that deep, soul-satisfying peace. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for those words. Thank you for the words that say you are our peace. God, help us when we just don't get it. We just don't understand. Lord, that's why you came. You came to save us and you came to be our peace. Lord, thank you for not giving up on us. Thank you for crying with us when our hearts are breaking and for crying for us when we just don't understand. Lord, soften our hearts, open our eyes, let us be willing to see who you are and what you have for us as our peace.